with that, let me just introduce our moderator for today, Jimmy Corona, is a professor of emergency medicine and is the director of medical toxicology in the Department of Emergency Medicine. And she has been instrumental in helping me develop today's session with the plenary at the small group. And she's going to be moderating, so that's all you're going to hear from me. Uh, you ready? Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Um, so, uh, without too much further uh, discussion, we're going to go kind of rapid fire. So, I'm going to introduce Emily Moyne, who's a fourth year medical student here, who's done uh, a lot of great advocacy, and I'm not going to say much about it other than uh, she's going to give us a talk, and then we're going to introduce our panelists and kind of get going uh, pretty quickly. So, thanks for coming. department to admit in with my resident, but so nervous that I think she did all the work, to be honest. And uh, so we found this sort of older gentleman, you know, the kind of guy who hasn't been to the doctor in, like, God knows how long. And uh, he told us that lately he'd been feeling really, really tired. And he had this really scary thing happen to him where, I don't know where, he just started coughing up blood, like a lot of it. And that really freaked him out. So that finally brought him to the hospital. So we asked him, you know, all the questions, and he trusted us enough to share that he injected heroin. He'd been doing it sort of on and off for decades, really, but lately, mostly on. So it might not be clear right now, but I promise by the end of Mod 2, you'll understand why we chose to test him for hepatitis C, and we found that he was positive. So we got him upstairs, we worked with an incredible team, we left him off with treatment for his addiction, and we made a lot of phone calls, filled out a lot of paperwork, and eventually we cured his hepatitis C. We cured his hepatitis C. Isn't that amazing? We're the first generation of physicians who can say that we cure that previously incurable virus. It's a true medical marvel. So just this past Christmas, I got this card in the mail. It was from Doug, and it said, Dear Dr. Emily, Merry Christmas. This is my granddaughter, Susie. And there's a photo inside of Doug with this tiny little perfect baby, his granddaughter. And I remember he told us that he was a stranger in his family. So I get this card in the mail, and now I know. He's alive. He's doing well. He's reconnected with his family. How amazing is that? It's a really beautiful story. But how is that it's not true? So the first part is true. Doug came to the hospital. He felt like shit. My resident and I saw him, and he did test positive for the hepatitis C virus. But the problem is, while we were putting in admin orders and waiting for a bed to open up upstairs and putting out a million other little fires, Doug was in the emergency department going into withdrawal. And he'd been down that road a few times before, and he just didn't think that he could do it that day. So he left. And I had no idea what happened to him after that. So I'm here to talk to you guys today because I believe that in this age of absolute medical marvels, we can do better for patients like Doug. And I'm going to tell you guys how. So probably all of you have heard that the epicenter of the opioid crisis is right here in Philadelphia in Kensington. In 2017, over 1,200 people in the city of Philadelphia alone died from opioid overdose. It is a terrible crisis. 
And I'll, even though you're right at the beginning of your careers in medicine, I bet that a lot of you have already interacted with patients who struggled with addiction. So I want you to take a moment, close your eyes, just hear me, close your eyes, and think back on one of those encounters. Picture that person in front of you. Remember the sound of their voice. Remember the story they told. Now I want you to think about all the love that you feel for your parents, your significant other, your friends, your classmates. You have to know in your bones that people who use drugs have people who feel that way about them just as strong. Open your eyes. Now what if I told you that there was a treatment we could offer that could reduce all-cause mortality in people who use opioids by 37% at one year and decrease the use of illicit opioids by 40% after six months? What if this treatment could reduce the tortures of craving and the suffering of withdrawal. And I want to be really, really clear. Withdrawal is suffering. Do you guys remember the worst stomach flu you've ever had? It's kind of a funny image, right? But it's not a funny experience. Your heart is racing, you've got chills, you've nausea, earth-shaking diarrhea. When you felt that way, if you knew exactly what it would take to make all of your symptoms go away in an instant, would you have done it? Could you have resisted it? Would you even want to? Now, the treatment that I'm talking about today, the treatment that reduces all-cause mortality and the use of illicit opioids, is buprenorphine, commonly known by the brand name Suboxone, a daily medication that treats the torture of craving, the suffering of withdrawal, Importantly, reduces the likelihood of fatal overdose. It is a medical marvel. It's a drug that can truly change the game in the opioid crisis. But as you guys know, it takes special training to prescribe this life-saving medication. So, all too infrequently, it's not offered. I also want to be really clear about something else, which is that there are many different paths to recovery, of which buprenorphine is just one. However, the reason that I'm focusing on it today is that it is an evidence-based treatment that you can offer to your patients when you hit the wards in just 275 days. And yes, I did math. <laughs> now, friendship here is amazing. It's what you came here to do. But it can be frustrating, too. And I think that the thing about it that was the most frustrating for me when I was in your shoes is that sometimes you feel powerless. You know, you can't put in your own orders. All your notes have to be co-signed, and you'll spend hours coming up with the perfect plan for your patients, and then someone just overrules it on grounds. But by completing your deeper marketing training, you have a unique opportunity to affect change for your patients. So even though you may feel powerless, if you are trained to treat addiction with deeper marketing, and you might be the only person on your team who is, more often than not, then you can put that in your plan for your patients. And when your attending or your resident says, oh, that's a great idea, but we can't use buprenorphine because I'm not licensed to prescribe it, then you tell them, use the PEN pathway to prescribe buprenorphine to inpatients. Because when patients are admitted to the hospital, there is no requirement for an additional license to prescribe buprenorphine. So there's no reason for a patient in our illustrious medical institution, a patient whose life, like all of ours, is worth PEN medicine, <coughs> to suffer withdrawals and craving, or to leave, like Doug left two years ago, 
without being offered a life-saving treatment for addiction.
but I really liked that it made me feel normal uh, and functional around people in a way that I wasn't comfortable before. So I remember not taking it for the pain. I actually put it aside and dealt with the pain of the kidney stone and saved the Percocet for more social situations like going out after work or a concert or something like that. And when it was gone, it was gone, and I sort of moved on in life. But then about four years later, I had, uh, was going through a divorce uh, and experienced depression for the first time in my life. I was unidentified, undiagnosed, untreated, and I was working in the ICU and went home one night with some dilaudid in my pocket. Uh, it was accidental. It was something that happened commonly back then. You would dose people routinely and put it in your pocket to redose them and just forgot to waste it. Uh, but when I was at home sitting in my cold, empty house, looking around, I don't remember consciously thinking back to the Percocet experience, but I'm sure that, that there was some, there was some conscious connection there, but I thought, well, let me try it. And so I tried the Dilaudid, and it fixed my depression. I remember not feeling happy, uh, but I wasn't sad either, and I felt functional in my life, and that very quickly turned into a daily thing. Within a month, turned into street heroin, and within six months of that, I had, I was almost, I lost my job, house, career, all those things, it was, Homeless, and I spent about three, three and a half years in uh, heavy addiction uh, before I entered into recovery for the first time. Dr. Furman told me we had to be short, and that's really difficult for me, so I'm sure we can get into the rest at some point there. And so, um, I'm so it is always amazing to hear the stories, how they start. They often start with oral opioids. Um, and a lot of what we see, uh, you'll see, you know, you're sort of entering the new era where you may hear that people are undertreated for pain um, because we are swinging that pendulum back. But we are trying to use alternative analgesics in almost any case, especially in patients who are what we call opioid naive, so they've never had an opioid before. Um, so those are the people that we really want to protect from exposure. And, um, you know, I think Bill's story is one of a lot of people's story of, you know, gateway from, from a drug prescribed by, prescribed by me um, or, or anything in the future. Um, so I wanted to ask, uh, especially um, both uh, Nicole and Bill, um, you know, as medical students, I can remember, believe it or not, um, sitting in your shoes and thinking, gosh, my patients, how am I going to be able to ask them about such intimate things like, What's your substance use history? And you know, asking about cigarettes is pretty easy, but you know, when you start to get to some of these other things, it feels really intimidating. So maybe uh, Nicole, you can give me a sense of what's a good way to ask and a bad way to ask, and Emily can chime in. I mean, it's easy for us because we're peers. Like Brian and I, when we go bedside, it's really not that complicated to ask. But um, for the Providers, I just feel like in a compassionate, non-judgmental way, it's more a tone than it is um, the language. But as far as language goes, the person first language, like you don't use addict anymore, just person suffering with substance use disorder, and a lot of the language surrounding this has changed. So just being aware of that and, and the tone of the conversation, I think, is the most important. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think it's interesting that uh, tobacco uh, is not a taboo subject, but all the other substances that are illegal are the whole separate argument. I do think it's fascinating that we even have this subconscious um, way that we think about them. Um, but as clinicians, um, it's been interesting the past two weeks I've had three different doctor's appointments for varying 
things that have to do with age probably that need to get taken care of. But it's it's actually a really good opportunity to sort of test out um, being open and talking about my history with opioid use disorder to see reactions and things. And some being scheduled to be to have surgery for carpal tunnel. And so in the pre-op exam, we went through my medical history, and one of the questions was, okay, you have hypertension. Is that under control? And I was like, yeah, we adjusted my metoprolol about a year ago. It's been great ever since. Okay, great, and moved on. And when we got to operative and post-operative pain management, it was, uh, so the uh, addiction thing, how's that going for you? I was like, it's very well controlled, and then recovery, doing well. He's like, uh, okay, yeah, we'll have to, I guess, just really be careful with that. And it was with the hypertension conversation, it was eye contact, it was, and his um, demeanor made me feel comfortable that he had a solid understanding of hypertension and the physiology behind it, of medications, what does it mean to have it under control. But yet when we talked about myopia use disorder, um, there was a look at the paper, look at the floor, rare eye, eye contact, and I didn't have a good, I didn't feel comfortable that he had an, an understanding of the disorder and what possibilities they were to have gotten me into recovery, what I've done to sustain my recovery. And there was really, I didn't really feel like I was part of the plan moving forward about what's the safest way to progress. And so I think, uh, which is fascinating for your generation that this is something that you talk about and you're learning a lot more about it, but I think I'm sure you could all describe very well hypertension and what's behind it. And I think if you could do the same thing for substance use disorder and learn pertinent questions, uh, along with treating them like a human and not treating them like that, that disorder is distinct from other disorders. Uh, I think that'll go a long way. Okay. Yeah, I would say, speaking from the student perspective, like as you um, start to take histories, uh, like everything will make you nervous, you know, like asking about, you know, menstrual periods or whatever. Um, but I think like practice is probably the number one most important thing to get comfortable because when you're comfortable, your patient will be comfortable with the questions that you're asking. And the other thing is, like, as you practice, adopt sort of a set way that you ask the questions and ask them of everyone. Because if you are keying into something about a person and using that to make an assumption that you should be asking, then that can make people uncomfortable. And the flip side is addiction affects all different types of people from all different walks of life. So you really should be asking everyone. And if you get into that habit, then you won't miss it. Um, so, Nicole, maybe um, you could tell us a little bit about the patient that came into your care this week, how they came into your care, and, and what your job has been. Yeah. We love this story. This is our biggest story. There's been so many successes that they're hard to, hard to narrow down, but this one was um, a referral from one of the emergency room doctors just from working with him on other cases that came into emergency. He referred us to family friends who were struggling with addiction and who recently experienced a relapse. Um, so we talked to mom for a week or so, and then finally we got, you know, we got the patient on the phone and and we were able to get him to come into our office to talk to him. Um, he didn't want to do anything that day. At least that's what he disclosed to us. He, he wasn't. He just wanted to have a conversation, which is a big deal that somebody came in anyway just to have the conversation. So there was some kind of motivation and, and we knew that. Um, 
so he's, you know, he was talking to us, and, and we saw him start to sweat and be uncomfortable. So we started to have the conversation about going down to emergency and getting him some Suboxone so he could feel better. And he did it. Um, so we texted the doctor who referred him, and he called the emergency and made it so easy for us to get um, his first dose of Suboxone that that's a barrier that can take a really long time. Like, we think about it going to emergency, it could be hours and hours. This patient had his Suboxone in less than an hour. Um, so we did that, and we knew that he was going to go use, because it's not just about getting high, it's a habit of, of using, right? But he had this box in him, so he was a lot less likely to overdose, and he came back. He came back when he was finished, and we started the process of um, getting, finding him a bed for inpatient treatment. He sat at registration with, you know, going from our office to registration, and he's, he turned around to me and said, I'm 100% ready to go into treatment. Um, and that's what that's what we did. I mean, it was his plan. It was his, you know, everything was was up to him. It was very strength based. It was very individual based. We we met him where he was, and we escorted him to treatment on Saturday. And he's still there. I just talked to Valley Forge, and and he's doing well. Yeah, I should add that Nicole took him to treatment on Saturday morning. <laughs> she keeps um, telling on me. <laughs> not supposed to be done. Right wow. now. We're so proud of the work that is getting done because. Again, these aren't people that we are able to reach, you know, through an appointment process or a traditional, you know, opportunity. They are, um, from our standpoint, you know, we're seeing uh, quite a few patients who are coming into the emergency department. And our early practice was uh, to hand them a piece of paper that gave them their referral services and opportunities when they were quote unquote ready that they could make those phone calls. But we know it's very difficult to do that unless you have an amazing advocate slash parent or loved one who you know, can, can control that and control you in the interim, which is pretty impossible. Um, I've taken care of parents who, you know, have been doing a 24-hour vigil on their child um, in order to get them into treatment and prevent them from, you know, going and using in the interim and kind of losing their motivation. So Suboxone provides that stabilization. But uh, what I was going to say is that we initially started with referrals, then we started with um, Narcan. So really important, Narcan. Um, so we started a grant program at Presby where we can dispense naloxone to any patient who we either identified as having opioid use disorder or any patient who had an overdose, and we can get it out for free. And that was pretty novel. That was about four years ago. Um, so that began to give us a chance to have the conversation, which was really important. Um, since then, we know that about 8 or 10% of people who are revived with naloxone in the community die within one year. So that's really not enough. It's a great temporizing measure, but we need more things to get people into treatment. And so that's when we started um, getting the morphine directly from the emergency department. So if someone comes in and has symptoms or craving and isn't even ready to go into treatment, we can still use it. There's also about an eight or 10% rate of these patients leaving against medical advice from the hospital. So that's also why you know, we need this uh, medication in, in the hospital. So um, I think maybe Bill, you've been facing a lot of challenges, and um, can you tell us a little bit about your nursing um, goals and where you are with all that? Sure, I'm kind of, in a sense, on a holding pattern. Um, but um, interestingly, uh, like I said, I entered into recovery the first time after about, I think it was about three and a half to four years uh, of active use, including homelessness and jail, just all the all the things that you would typically think would, would come with it. Um, 
And then in, there was an interim of about five years that I was in, in recovery. In that time frame, I got remarried to my wife, who's present, and had some kids. Um, but I, when I entered recovery the first time, it was through um, uh, sort of a religious program. Um, and there are a lot of particulars with that, but I, I sort of eventually got to this point of being consistently beat down uh, to the point of being homeless and not thinking I was going to get out there. I don't like to listen to anything. And so I entered this religious program and kind of uh, adopted a lot of the ideology behind it um, and sort of was convinced uh, to abandon science, which is what I'd always done. Um, and so what I found is in that, this, and this isn't a negative, um, not trying to be negative, um, religious means just this was my personal experience that uh, I tend to sort of be kind of all in with everything that I do. Um, and so I was all in with this. And, went to seminary and all these other things. Uh, but what I found is over that five years, I didn't address any underlying issues. I had a back history of trauma, of sexual abuse, and when I was in jail, it was rape, and all these other things that sort of were factored in. But what I've also identified is that I was a paramedic at 19, and saw a lot of things, managed a lot of really sick people, made a lot of mistakes, and through years of um, seeing horrific things and not really having an outlet to deal with that, I found that that has had a significant effect on me in terms of the vicarious trauma that I've um, received. Um, and I wasn't like a person that could leave it at, at work either. I generally took work home and, and uh, spent a lot of time worrying about these people that I cared for. So anyway, all these things were untreated over that five-year period. And uh, so I reached another peak level of stress with became foster parents. and got pregnant with twins, and I was afraid I was going to lose my foster son, who I loved, and this is a very abbreviated version. Uh, but anyways, through all these things, uh, depression, and I relapsed inside two years uh, in heavy addiction. And what I found over my fight and work to get into recovery again is that I deeply love medicine, and I deeply love caring for people. Um, even being here is more special than I could uh, explain to anybody. Not just because it's speaking to fellow people in healthcare, but it's in the place that I love and the place that's a big part of my heart. So anyway, I, over, the, over the past year and a half, I made the decision to work to get my license restored. So what life looks like for me, for the first year, uh, I had to agree to a lot of treatment. 30-day inpatient, uh, followed by six months of three days a week outpatient, followed by six more months of at least one day outpatient. I had to do three... AA meetings a week, I initially had to do 90 in the first 90 days, and then three per week for the next couple of years. Uh, I check in, this GPS track on my phone, and uh, I check in with board of nursing every day, every morning, for random selected urine samples that I have to go and provide random urines. And so for three years, I need to do that just to um, prove uh, sobriety. I need to prove that I'm drug-free for three years, and then I'll have my license restored uh, with some restrictions probably, and then be monitored for another three years. And so that's where I am working towards the nursing end. Uh, but in the meantime, I spend a lot of time in the advocacy world, talking to anybody that I can, have a particular interest in talking to people in medicine and nursing to kind of explain my story and some things that I've learned along the way that might explain why we're so difficult to deal with and why folks generally might not like to deal with us. I think there's really good answers to that. But I also recently started the Certified Recovery Specialist Training that Nicole has started that this past week. So for two months, I'll be doing that. And then after that, seeking a job. If anybody's looking for someone who likes 
you do that kind of stuff along with researchy kind of stuff from your guy. That's great, thank you. I should say that um, you know it was uh, special to watch Bill become a nurse after you know having been uh, pleasure working side by side with him as a tech in the emergency department. But um, he's really is one of the best nurses I've ever worked with, and I continue to. Um, you know, be excited about working with you again. Um, it's particularly special for me to introduce these two who don't know each other, um, because they're probably two of my um, favorite, most successful interactions that I've had in, in sort of seeking the work that we're doing. So um, I just wanted to ask maybe Nicole to say a few words about um, her journey and her recovery. So I was young. Um, I experienced overdose, and I was not treated well in the emergency department. That's why this project is very close to my heart. Um, I spent uh, five years in active addiction using opiates. Um, it was the worst, withdrawals the worst. I used um, diverted you for to get through withdrawal. Um, I bought that right on the street so I could get through that, and it was the best thing I did, because I don't know that I would have been able to do it without it. Um, and I celebrated 10 years in recovery in January, so it works. <laughs> the diverted youth worked for me. Um, but no, it's the, the overdoses and how I was treated in the hospital were, I mean, it was awful. It, I didn't want to go back for help. I didn't want to ask for help again. Um, and I subsequently overdosed again and was treated the same way the second time. Um, and shortly after that, I entered recovery. So. Um, this is why we do what we do. So Narcan's important, everybody. So it's harm reduction. Let's keep everybody alive until we can get them into recovery. Hard to argue with that. Thanks. Um, Emily, other observations you've had? I don't think we rotated. Did you rotate in the health ED? We did, yeah. Um, I didn't have a lot of Who's coming in with a repeat overdose? How, how can we best take care of them today? Great example. 
Yeah, I was going to actually ask Bill to comment. I know that you know in our work together in the emergency department, we had um, nurses and doctors and maybe other people on the care team who might not have been as respectful. Um, but I always remember, of course, that you um, were and would be. Um, how did you handle it when your colleagues were being disrespectful or, or made you feel uncomfortable about a patient? Can I comment on one more thing to add? Sure, sure. Just really fast, just uh, just seeing buprenorphine, um, not to be controversial, but it's interesting, it was off the table for me uh, as a nurse uh, and physicians to get into recovery. We were mandated to an abstinence-based only uh, recovery model uh, if you want to practice again, which is interesting because I went through in an 18-month period 16 inpatient treatments. I was in 13 detox only is in three full 30-day rehabs over an 18-month period. And the first 15 of those, I lasted no less than three hours, or no more than three hours upon discharge before using it. So I was at extremely high risk for overdose. And the reason that I was pursuing accident phase was because I wanted my license back. But how did I handle coworkers? It's fascinating. I always would say that any one of us are one either mistake or one issue in our life changing that we would end up like the people um, who we had the great privilege to take care of. Um, so I never thought that it was appropriate to complain about um, the great responsibility that you're taking on. I think there is no greater job in the world than what you're gonna do. To have someone come in that's possibly the worst day in their life and you have the opportunity to interact with them and make it a little easier for them, I don't think there's anything better than that. Um, but how, would I, how did I handle, uh, and I, I enjoyed teaching when I was a, a nurse and a paramedic, and so I loved having students, and because it was fascinating, even fresh out of school or a student in school, uh, a lot of the stigma and uh, prejudice was already ingrained in them, and not necessarily just from school, but I think socially we have certain opinions of certain people and certain sliding scales of how we determine what type of care they're worthy of. And, what I found is screaming at people and yelling at them and telling them wrong did no good. But I did find that modeling, uh, like Emily just said, modeling a better way to take care of them uh, seemed to be the best way. Not so much because they saw how I interacted, but they noticed how the patients responded to me being treated like a human being. And that seemed to go a lot further. Um, but I will say that it's extremely difficult when you're in an environment and a high percentage of your coworkers feel one way and you feel the opposite. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of determination and a lot of stamina to keep up with continuing to do the right thing. Um, but I would say find the people that do and stick with them and change culture when you can. Yeah, that's what we count on medical students for, actually. We, we do really think that you are the idealism of our teams and um, we, we are no, you know, we are always expecting you to say or ask that question of, you know, why or how can we do better? Because um, we all know that, that we bring that to, to the care that we give in an emergency department or anywhere in the hospital. So um, that advocacy role is, is all yours. So um, maybe we'll stop for a few minutes and just see if we can um, have some questions from you guys. I can go around with the microphone or um, questions for any of our panelists, ideally, um, about their experience or while you're warming up. Ah.
well in the emergency department. I was wondering if you could elaborate slightly on what that experience was like. I'm just going to repeat the question. The question was, um, you mentioned that you hadn't been treated well in the emergency department. Could you please elaborate on that experience? We started colds. Um, I remember there were no resources provided. It was a very cold interaction. Um, and I was probably, I remember being, if it was offered, I probably would have accepted some resources and help. I wasn't in the place to ask yet. Um, or when I was ready, I would have gone back and asked for help, but it was not a warm interaction, so I, I did not do that. I didn't seek help through um, the medical fields. of the fear of monitoring. And so the paper makes some recommendations about how 
you know, what's, what's good for everyone should be good for, you know, clinicians as well. So I think we're just scratching the surface on that issue, but it, it doesn't make sense that, that, you know, abstinence is the only option. We're saying that's not what we want for, for most people, um, so it doesn't make sense for, for others. Thank you, Lonnie. about the most recent time because the one before is a little more complicated being homeless but the most valuable number one resource that I have is sitting right here uh, who's my wife um, had it not been for that support I would either be in active use somewhere on the street or I would probably most likely be dead giving advent of fentanyl uh, on the market now uh, without a doubt her continued support and, and the way that Trish sort of framed it was as long as you keep fighting and you keep trying, as long as you don't give up, then I'll continue with you and we'll make this work. But mind you, um, when I relapsed, when I had a recurrence of use, my, at the time, foster son, now adopted, adoptive son, was, uh, oh, what, 11 and a half months, and we had newborn twins in the house. So my wife took on, on top of working full-time as a social worker in child welfare, extremely stressful job, managing all the finances because of course I wasn't working and taking care of three kids, two of them newborns and essentially sort of a fourth uh, because I was not quite in my right mind but her continued support uh, and when I would go in and out of these treatments she would be at home with these, um, with the kids and trying to manage all this and shoulder all this responsibility with absolutely zero support. All the support was geared towards me, and anytime she would even try to be involved uh, in that help, uh, it would usually be kicked back as then, no, he needs to do what he does for what he needs for him, you need to take care of yourself, which wasn't really an option with that much pressure. I'm very, not really probably what you're asking, but for me, the greatest support was my wife, having someone who loved me, cared for me, could see through all of the, the apparent behavior that I had and still see that I was a sick individual that needed help and did whatever she could to help me. And she never implemented tough love, even though it was recommended multiple times. Okay. Cool. My um, stopping was a little earlier than that. I didn't go to treatment my last um, time. It was truly the diverted suboxone from on the couch from the
Hello? Um, sorry. Uh, what's, like, how can we incorporate family and caregivers into our care? Um, and do you have any recommendations for that? Because it seems like uh, your wife seems like an incredibly strong person. I don't know if I would have the wherewithal to survive that. Um, and so I can't speak for anyone else. But I was just wondering, what are the ways that could have been, she, your family could have been better incorporated into your care, or given her recommendations for making sure that we incorporate support into that? Short answer is I don't know. Um, and I think more importantly, I don't know that, I think one of the big problems with substance use disorder treatment and how we do this is that the person who has the disorder is the decision maker and all these things. I think that, I think it'd be very rude for me to take that responsibility from my wife uh, or another family member to say, what is it that you needed? Because I'm not sure that I could tell you. Um, I would say, come talk to me afterwards and I'll have you exchange information with my wife and maybe you'll be in her group, but I, I really don't know. And I, I don't think a lot of people do. I think that's one of the big issues right now with with treatment is that family is just sort of way out there and go to an Al-Anon meeting, which may or may not be helpful for you. So I'm not really sure about that when you stumped me. six years in NA, so the, the um, Narcotics Anonymous, which is a sister organization to AA for um, not more narcotics based. Um, it was the only thing that was available when I, in my area, and it kind of still is, I'm from Delaware County, so it's the only option I have, so that's what I thought I had to do. Um, for some people it works, it works well. Um, I've discover some other programs that work better for me now. Um, a lot of our people that we see in emergency have not done well in the abstinence-based 12-step programs, and a lot of organiza organizations are still forcing it upon them. Um, so there are other options and other resources available that that doesn't have to be the only way. So we really tend to support multiple pathways of recovery and starting with harm reduction. So that's just my personal. No, I agree with that too. Um, keep my, I'll do the best to keep my personal bias out of it. I have not personally found all steps to be very helpful. Um, I find there's a lot of good things about uh, 12 step meetings and the fellowship and the social aspect of it. I've met a lot of really good friends in AA, but in terms of the hyper spiritual um, religious roots of the program, are really, really hard to weed out and keep it as a still have a stable structure to it. And I found it really, really difficult for me to create some abstract being that I'm supposed to dump all of my concerns onto when that was really one of the things that led to my particular fall is that all the belief systems that I had fell apart. Uh, and I, the stuff that I really did care about, medicine and caring for people wasn't there and was out of my life. So it was very difficult for me. But I, I, what I do think is a very um, good thing about AA is that there's nowhere in the world that you can go and not find a meeting at some point during the day where you're going to find a whole bunch of people that are just like 
you if you suffer. And I do think that, I mean, for decades, uh, this particular subset of people have been sort of marginalized by the world. Um, and I think it's kind of a very beautiful, humane thing that they all got together and said, well, medicine's not gonna help us, so let's help each other. And anywhere in the world, you can go and find a group of people that believe that, because I think that's the positive piece of AA. You guys are super smart, so you're probably way ahead of me in this, but I know that I would have been confused by this when I was first year, so I'll just add when we say that AA or 12-step programs in general are abstinence-based, that means abstaining even from treatments for addiction, including buprenorphine and methadone. So that's the clarification. So I'm curious, um, you both mentioned, so you're in training to become a recovery specialist and you're a recovery specialist. What differences do you notice um, in providing treatment to people who are suffering abuse right now because you've been there? Do you notice differences from your peers who haven't experienced um, substance use? Yes. Um, you mean talking to people, their yeah. patients? Yeah, sharing like a peer experience, uh, uh, sorry, a peer experience with your patients versus people who haven't had that experience trying to relate. A big difference, right? But it's also patiently. So I, I gauge how quickly I'm going to have to self-disclose when we go into a room. Like if we have a patient who's really um, not, doesn't want to talk about it and feels like the barriers, the walls are already up for the patient, I just go in and I'm like, we, I've been here, like we did this, let's, you know, let's just talk and, and see what we can do. So it is the barriers come down, the walls come down a lot sooner, I feel like, especially when I'm like, I know what withdrawal feels like. Like, I have been there. Let's get some something to help you, because it's, you know, I don't know how you feel. So I feel like, yes, being there and experiencing overdose and, and withdrawal is, makes a difference. I promise I wouldn't talk, but we started this program about two and a half years ago. It was hard to get buprenorphine on the formulary. It was hard to get the hospital to accept this. It was hard to get some of my colleagues and nurses. They did a lot of training in the emergency department. But we, we built it, and they didn't really come. Patients would come. I would offer them buprenorphine, and they'd be like, no, I'm not really ready. And uh, we laugh about this. And then Nicole and I were about a year later. And you know, I call her, and I'm like, I've got a patient I talked to, and he doesn't really want treatment. And then she comes. She's at the bedside, and she comes back. She's like, he's going to do it. Like, so this is it, this is the difference. There, you know, I, the, I can be the biggest advocate, but Nicole makes all the difference, and Brian and our recovery specialist. So peer-to-peer -peer is, is the key, and it's the one thing that's really given me a lot of hope as we move forward, because I think it's the missing link. And the second thing is we have worked with the Innovation Center to use these um, basically diagnostic-based triage codes so that Nicole or Brian is in the room before the clinician is, already talking to the patient because they get notifications when we have a patient like that. So we took the provider out of it so that the provider doesn't even have to have the do you want to talk to somebody conversation. We already just put them at the bedside. Brian, would you mind standing up? I know you're going to hate me for this, but just a, a, big, a big wave. Brian Rivera is our other certified recovery specialist. Thank you for coming, and thank you both for all the hard work that you do. And uh, it's the critical secret sauce in, in getting people into treatment. I'm glad you caught on to that. Yeah. Uh, so I understand that like you have this peer-to-peer -peer relationship because you've like been through that before. But what recommendations do you have for someone who has not been through like opiate addiction to have to build that same rapport with their patients? Because it's really great that you have that peer support and you can connect with them. But I feel like 
that's not always going to be the case. So it'd be nice to know as I come to that how to try and build that same rapport without having to have gone through the same process. It's really about the language and the non-judgmental, compassionate approach. Like we are disease. I mean, you can speak to this. It's guilt and shame, and we feel awful. And just to have somebody like say. You know, I accept you for, for who you are, and let's talk about how we can, you know, help you get a little better. It's just, it's the tone, it's the language, and it's just accepting the person where they are. We have time for maybe one more?